Hello, welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. So I was looking over the list of episodes that I've posted so far, and it occurs to me that they are either about aspects of Byzantine life that we can identify with, such as how did the Byzantines read Homer, uh, issues of identity, how did they experience Hagia Sophia, uh, religious life, emotional life, sexuality, things like that. Or they're very directly about the modern reception of Byzantium uh, in video games or films or how we do and disseminate research. Today's topic is, fortunately, very far removed from our experience of life. I imagine this is true for most of you out there, unless you're downloading these episodes in some very interesting places. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the very underestimated impact of raiding on Byzantine life, daily life, the normal course of living in the Byzantine provinces. Now, for a number of reasons, this topic has fallen between the cracks. It's not very well covered in scholarship. There are a number of reasons for that, I imagine. One of them would be that it doesn't quite rise to the level of you know, warfare, as military historians like to talk about it. It's a generally a smaller scale event, though it can take place in conjunction with regular warfare. But it's not a story of diplomacy and armies and generals and things that, according to an older conception of history, were, were the stuff of history. At the same time, as you're reading Byzantine histories and chronicles, it's tempting to dismiss these kinds of events as part of the background noise. Okay, there's a little raid here, there's a little raid there. There are periods of history when they're more intense or more frequent, but in themselves they're reported generally very briefly, and you tend to move on. This is like, what can I make of this? It doesn't, it's not sort of a very impactful event in itself. Recently some historians have begun to realize perhaps again, that is after a period when the field may have forgotten the significance of the aggregate impact of all of those events. And in fact, now that I'm writing a Byzantine history from the sources, I kept coming across references to these raids so frequently and so impactfully when it comes to the, let's say, the quality of life uh, in, in the Byzantine provinces that over time... I have become convinced that this was one of the key determinants in the daily life of the average Byzantine provincial. Whether raids are a frequent event, whether the state has the capacity to resist them, uh, whether the state is creating uh, the strategic environment to prevent them. And I'm beginning to realize that Coping with this problem was one of the main preoccupations of the, the emperors and the whole chain of command and the court, and it was situated very precisely at the nexus of paying taxes locally to the central government for the purpose of ensuring some kind of mitigation of that problem. That problem 
was huge. It affected millions of people over the course of the centuries, but hundreds of thousands of people in in periods of intense activity. And it had tremendous economic uh, consequences, both in its direct impact on agriculture and pastoralism, but also in enslavement, in the experience of being carted away or walked, marched, forced marched away from your home to some foreign land where you're going to be a slave. And even if your relatives or the emperors or the church ransom you, in that case, given the amounts involved, the, the sheer numbers, the scale of the problem, this was a huge cash flow out of the empire uh, to the surrounding peoples. So this was not only a huge factor in the life of the majority of Byzantines, men, women, and children, and their animals, but also it's the type of experience that they had most commonly that is the furthest removed from our experience of life. And it's possibly for that reason that it has been overlooked in recent decades, you know, especially by scholars working in secure, affluent countries, which most of us are, where that's just not something on the, on the horizon, literally. And we tend to focus more on aspects of life that, that we can identify with. Okay, maybe I'm speculating there a little bit, but it is a type of event that has been um, underserved um, in a lot of recent work. My guest today is Alexander Sarandis. Some of you may know him as the author of an excellent book on Justinian's Balkan Wars with that title. He's one of the best historians I know at, among other things, synthesizing historical narrative information with the archaeology of the regions he's studying. He's very meticulous and good at doing that. And it's precisely this approach that has enabled him to produce a synthetic argument about the socioeconomic impact of raiding in the 6th century, looking both at the Balkans and the Near East and contrasting the two regions in the way they've been covered differently, both in the original sources and in modern scholarship. And in doing this, he's managed to avoid the trap of seeing these kinds of events as either part of military history, which needs to be written in a sort of grand military narrative style, or as very local events whose impact we can document through this or that excavation or chance find or coin hoard or whatever, but instead to produce a global picture of the aggregate impact of this type of activity on the lives of provincials and, in fact, the overall trajectory of the Roman Empire in this period right before it's about to lose most of its Balkan provinces to Avars and Slavs and others and the East, first to the Persians and then to the Arabs. So this is a pretty critical period. And so I thought it would be great to have him on the podcast so that you can get a sense of the kinds of risks to which provincials were exposed and the impact that that had on the fate of the state as a whole. Many thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes on their platform. Here's my discussion with Alexander Sarandis. 
Hello, Alexander. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So as I've been writing this history of Byzantium, I'm usually on the lookout for the following kinds of topics. I'm looking for things that are sources pay a lot of attention to, which they thought was obviously very important for, for their lives, for the history of the, the polity or whatever, to which modern scholarship has generally not paid a lot of attention. And so this is why I was so happy to come across your uh, article, which is very long and substantial and makes a you know, big you know, picture argument about rating, because I kept finding rating appearing in the sources over and over and over again as something so important for the lives of so many thousands, if not millions of you know, provincial um, Byzantines over the centuries, and yet could find very little scholarship to you know, give me a historical argument for how to understand it, what its, what its historical uh, impact and role um, was. So it's very happy you did that. And it, it, it might even be worth talking a little bit about why that topic has been avoided. Uh, but why don't we start with some basics first? So what is raiding and how is it different from other forms of warfare or aggression? So, um, yeah, raiding across the frontiers of the Eastern Roman Empire um, this was different from, for example, wars of conquest, in that the aim was not to annex territory. Uh, the aim was rather to strip the regions that were being attacked of their resources uh, before the raiding armies returned back across the frontiers um, from, from where they uh, come from. So um, these were transient military attacks. They didn't necessarily involve... Uh, engagement with enemy armies, pitched battles, uh, etc. They were really they targeted by and large civilian communities. Um, uh, I, I'm sure we'll come on to the the, the aims behind raiding, but but the, but the aims behind raiding just briefly at this point um, f shaped the, the, the characteristic of raiding because the aim was effectively economic, on one hand, which was to bolster the resources of the, the polity or the community doing the raiding. Um, at the same time, you know, another aim which shaped the nature of raiding was political. Um, a successful raid could confer political prestige on the group carrying out the raid. Um, at the same time, it could damage the political reputation of the community or the polity that was being raided. So um, these, these economic and political aspects shaped the nature of raiding, which was um, transient but destructive uh, in short. So what kind of resources are we talking about? Um, well, effectively, uh, on one hand, uh, monetary wealth, valuables, um, but also more sort of mundane resources, I guess, uh, foodstuffs. Um, uh, and I would argue in a pre-modern economic context, perhaps most importantly, manpower, which really, right. which is mentioned uh, by almost all of our sources which discuss raiding, prisoners of war or captives. Um, in a pre-modern economy, really manpower was normally at a premium. So any way of boosting your manpower resources was really invaluable. So, I mean, um, uh, manpower captured during a raid could be um, settled on land, put to work um, as, as, as farmers, farming communities, uh, and they and or they could be recruited as soldiers. Or enslaved. Or, yeah, or slaves. I mean, 
agricultural labor, slaves, there's, there's often a gray area there. Right. And sometimes uh, ransomed back to the empire for money. Yeah, and that, that could happen, that quite often happens during raids, actually. So in particular, if important members of a community were captured during a raid, perhaps even if uh, a high-ranking official or maybe military man was captured, then they could be ransomed back during the raid, which was another means of bolstering uh, the, the financial profit made from that raid. So just for the purposes of picturing this, uh, visualizing it, right? So we're talking about a group of armed men, usually on horseback, who invade, uh, target civilian communities, probably agricultural, round up men, women, and children, possibly livestock, if they have the time to, you know, cart it back, um, any valuables that they can find, especially, you know, gold and, and such, and then just return to their native land or you know whatever and and probably entering into negotiations over the sale of prisoners or the ransoming right and 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 so forth so that's just generally the picture right i suppose the only other thing in terms of resources i mean this was less uh less less frequent and it, it when it did happen it was more often in the east uh, which was the plundering of architectural elements right. so so the Sassanid Persians, on, on a few occasions, according to our sources, actually carried off bits of or entire uh, buildings. Right. I mean, so you mentioned the Sassanid kings. Um, so our audience might be thinking when we're talking about raiding of, you know, a small group of Huns here, a small group of Saracens there. But, you know, you, you know, mentioning the Persian kings implies that this is something that can be practiced on a you know, state level. Uh, so who are, in more concrete terms, the people carrying out raids? Okay, so um, yeah, in, in the paper, I discussed the Balkan theatre of war <clears throat> and the Eastern theatre of war. So in the Balkans, up until really the 570s, I would argue, possibly even 580s, the um, groups uh, located north of the Lower Danube frontier, which separated the imperial provinces from the south, from the non-Roman regions to the north. Uh, the groups arranged north of this frontier were politically fragmented, small um, political entities. Um, they were called by our sources barbarians. Uh, I would say probably more commonly in modern literature referred to under the umbrella term barbarian. Um, they included Germanic-speaking groups in Pannonia, west of the Carpathian Mountains in what we would think of today as Hungary. Uh, these included the Gepids and the Lombards, the Lombards who, um, of course, famously later migrated to northern Italy. Um, east, east and south of the Carpathians, in what we would think of as modern Romania and Moldovia, you had groups of uh, Scleveni or Slavs, including the Scleveni and the Anti. Um, north and east of them, so north of the Black Sea, including areas of the Eurasian steppe, uh, there, were, there were a number of um, fragmented Hun groups, uh, and they come under various labels, Huns, Kutrugurs, Utugurs, Bulgars. Um, so it was a very fragmented political situation. Later in the 6th century, the situation becomes more unified. We see the emergence of a much larger, more formidable state north of the Lower Danube, uh, centred in Pannonia, and this was the Avar Khaganate. 
And the Avars were from this uh, world north of the Black Sea, from the Han or the Bulgar world. Um, they, um, and yet yeah, they, they effectively conquered many of the, the groups um, north of the Lower Danube, and they um, established this state in Pannonia. And so, so in the later decades of the 6th century, they were the main group that the, the empire was facing. So these are the groups that carried out the raids on the Balkans. Um, in the east, you have um, the, as we just mentioned, the Sassanid Persian Empire. Uh, and this was the other great superpower in the Near East and late antiquity. Um, an empire, you know, enormous in geographical extent, uh, with a centralized bureaucracy, standing army, uh, network of cities, etc. And uh, in the 6th century, the, the Sassanid Persian Empire fought a series of wars with the Eastern Roman Empire. And during these bouts of warfare, carried out raids on the eastern provinces of the, of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, also in the east, uh, you had the uh, Lakhmid Arab clients of the Sassanid Persians. And this was a, a federation of Arabian tribes based, uh, or at least centered on the settlement of Al-Hira, in, north, in the northeastern Arabian Peninsula. Um, and so that was the other major group. And they tended to carry out most of their raids across the desert into uh, areas of northern Syria. So these are the two, these are the sort of, the neighbours, as it were, of the Eastern Roman Empire across the two frontiers. Yeah, I sometimes get the sense that raiding across the Danube in, in, in the Balkan frontier was um, sort of part of the life and culture of a lot of these groups living on the other side. Like, hey, yeah, what do you want to do this summer? Well, we, maybe we can go attack the Gepids. Or, well, you know, why don't we just go to Thrace, uh, round up some captives or something like that? But your, your description implies that there's kind of a spectrum of aggressive activity, you know, ranging from small bands raiding to raiding taking place in the context of war. Um, and, and this is somewhat important. We'll come back to it. Uh, but I, I wanted to emphasize how raiding sometimes uh, sort of falls between the cracks in our scholarship because it 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 often tends to be mentioned as a kind of trivial, you know, sort of background event happening. <clears throat> you know, these oh, you know, these things are routine and normal. Um, but when it happens in the context of war, the emphasis then is on the war, you know, on the kings and the armies and the diplomacy and the big picture. And again, the ground level impact of raiding tends to uh, be overlooked. And in my readings and sort of in working through the sources for Byzantine history, like long term, like the whole period, not I mean, we're, we're focusing here on the sixth century, but this was a, a sort of perennial problem after the fifth century. I have found that raiding was a pretty fundamental fact of provincial life, especially the closer you are to the frontier. And it tended to um, shape you know, both the parameters of daily life and in the institutions um, that, uh, especially of the state in, in its dealings with the provincials, but that it had a tremendous impact, uh, cumulative, right? One or two raids, not a problem. But if this is a persistent fact, right? So what kind of overall impact on provincial life and just provincial history could this series of, you know, sequential recurring raids have? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think the way to see it in both frontier regions is that at least raiding in the context of warfare uh, happens in, in sort of concentrated bursts. 
periodically. I think there were periods of less, perhaps less violence. Um, but then there were some communities, as you alluded to, for whom raiding was you know, integral to their uh, their societies and, 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 and economies, effectively. So um, I mentioned the Lakhmid Arab uh, allies of the Persian Empire. You also had another Arab federation of tribes, the Ghassanids, who were allies with the Romans. Uh, for these Arab tribes, I think it's fair to say raiding was part of their culture and part of their socioeconomic um, structures. Um, it could be uh, it could be invaluable to, for example, uh, accessing or seizing control of pasturing grounds, especially when these groups were often nomadic or semi-nomadic pastoralists. Um, so I think the impact of raiding on communities living in these areas, um, it, it, it was uh, during periods of endemic raiding, traumatic. I mean, effectively, uh, you know, this involved the destruction of settlements. Uh, it, it involved the plundering and or destruction of valuables and of resources. It involved the um, capture and or murder of, of quite often large numbers of people. So, yes, I think on a short-term basis, this would have been extremely traumatic for anybody in, in the line of fire, as it yeah. were. Um, obviously, the, the and I think just to put, put this in some sort of context, I mean, there's, there's, there's been some very good work written on classical Greece uh, on this topic and also on uh, Republican Rome, so the impact of warfare on an agrarian economy pre oh. Yeah. So one 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 book which uh, I, I found very helpful was Paul Erdkamp's Hunger and the Sword, which is on the Second Punic War in Italy. Uh, the other one is by Hansen, which I think is called yes. Warfare and Agriculture in Classical yes, Greece, yes. I think. And these books actually include um, ex- uh, the results of experiments of just how easy it was to destroy agricultural resources. So bearing in mind, these communities were... Uh, subsistence farming communities by and large they didn't necessarily have large surpluses so even if even if the people who were victims were not carried off into captivity or were not killed uh, it was perfectly feasible that they might lose an entire annual harvest in one of these attacks so i think it's hansen for example has all these statistics about how quickly for example even a couple of hundred men could could burn or plunder uh, i don't know a a few acres of, of farmland even more labor-intensive um, uh, destruction of vines, for example, or olive trees, right. you know, with enough men was possible. And whereas, whereas a cereal har- cereals would take perhaps a year to grow back, vines would take three years, olive trees probably longer. So the impact on a subsistence farming community could be dramatic uh, of, of these attacks. So um, obviously, I think we'll come on to in later in the discussion, some of the um, some of the sort of infrastructure that was put into place in these regions to try and uh, effectively, I suppose, absorb the impact of of these raids. But um, I think for the periods, as you mentioned, the periods in which raiding was endemic, it would have been very difficult to live and remain in some of these areas. Right, especially if you lost uh, livestock, that was also important, uh, both for farming and pastoral, you know, economies and um, so forth. And also the experience of enslavement <laughs> being carried off right and by on what might have felt like a death march across the desert or across a river into you know an unknown forest to serve who knows whom i mean that that would have been horrifying and the numbers involved i i have come to found were sometimes quite high 
uh, we, in a previous uh, episode, I talked with Noel Lenski about slavery in late antiquity. And part of that experience is precisely this, the experience of being captured by uh, you know, barbarians, for lack of a better unifying term, and, and taken off into a foreign land to be a slave. And in one of his articles on that, especially re with regard to Attila, right? Because Attila seems to have practices like on an industrial scale. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who had that experience. And if you figure that the Eastern Roman Empire has a population at that time of, you know, somewhere maybe in the 20s million people, a few hundred thousand just, you know, carted off by Attila and the Huns is not a small number. And I think that the Persians did the same thing in the early seventh century, like right after the period covered in your article is this big war. And I think the Persians were mostly after agricultural labor forces. So they carried off hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine the scale of that, right? But, but scale is precisely like at the heart of this problem, just as you said, because if you, if you let one person loose on a vineyard with an ax, you know, after a few hours, like how many are you going to chop down? But if you've got two or 300 men, you can do some serious damage. Um, and uh, anyway, so, but let's talk about uh, precisely what you mentioned there at the end, the, the infrastructure, that is the, you know, the, the, the way in which these, this experience uh, prompted or structured sort of state responses and by extension, the relationship between political centers like Constantinople, and the provinces. So what could the Roman state do? Um, well, uh, I suppose the response, the, the, well, the immediate response, the ad hoc short-term response was uh, military. So um, in both frontier regions, you had um, permanently stationed frontier troops, Confederate troops, but more importantly for uh, confronting, uh, engaging these raids, you had uh, field armies, mobile field armies, which could be moved around from one theatre of war to the other. So in both, in both theatres of war, Roman armies were deployed against raiders to confront, defeat them, and or impel them to leave. Another um, proactive military option was to launch a counterattack not beyond the frontiers of the Roman Empire against the groups responsible for these attacks to try and um, encourage them to leave. I mean, this was the other way of, of doing things. Um, in a, from an infrastructural perspective, both regions um, received huge, uh, huge funding for fortification programs. And we see that this is actually pro probably to a greater extent in the Balkans, partly because the Balkans had already um, experienced bouts of raiding warfare for, well, over a century before the 6th century we're talking about, whereas the East actually had enjoyed a long period of peace right. with the Persian Empire from the mid, well, mid to late uh, 4th through to the early 6th centuries. So anyway, this, this money was, was effectively spent on building walls around cities, uh, building uh, military forts, watchtowers, uh, cross walls were built. So in the Balkans in particular, you've got these incredible structures walling off peninsulas or approaching to peninsulas or particular regions. Probably the most spectacular is the Long Wall of Thrace, yes. believed generally to be built by the Emperor Anastasius, which cordons off the, 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 the isthmus, or the approach to Constantinople from the Sea of Marmara to the Black Sea. Yes. Or, or the, the Hexamillion in the Peloponnese. Yeah, 
Yeah, this is the other, the other one of the other ones mentioned uh, in, the, in the sources. Um, so yeah, in, in addition to imperial resources spent on these fortifications, I think local people also invested resources in protecting themselves and their their, their their resources. So you have in the Balkans by the sixth century, you know, the entire this is a very mountainous landscape, but it really is carpeted in fortifications. Even off the beaten track, you find in places like the Republic of Northern Macedonia, you will find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small hilltop forts. And it's impossible that every single one could have been funded by the imperial government. So that one of the interpretations is that these were sort of hilltop refuges, places where a local community could retreat at a time of, of insecurity and maybe also protect their livestock and their, their resources. Yeah, I was wondering about those. So just physically, are they large enough to house, you know, 100, 200 people? Um, it, it, I mean, they vary. They're often quite small. I mean, sometimes just one or two hectares in, in size, I guess. Um, but, I mean, they would be enough to... I, I would say more like a sort of village community, perhaps. Right. So maybe, maybe, maybe in the tens rather than the hundreds. And okay. And you also mentioned watchtowers. So, what was their function? Is this just for people to observe the terrain from a from a high vantage point, and if they see an approaching column of riders, to just race back to a village and tell everybody to run to the hills or something? Well, I think. I think there's not a, we've got evidence from watchtowers which have been recorded, which have been sort of loosely dated to the fourth through to the sixth century. So the archaeological evidence isn't great, but we know these, these, these structures existed, uh, especially in the Hymas Mountains and some of the, the along some of the passes. Uh, one of the ideas is that these were, had a military function effectively. I mean, it was an intelligence. So as you say, lookout points, early warning systems. I think more generally, I've often thought of the, the, this infrastructure of fortifications as not just a defensive measure, but as, especially where the army was concerned, as a platform from which, uh, you know, military force could be used against mm. invaders and also could be then launched north of the, the, the frontier. Um, so it wasn't just so that the fortifications, watchtowers, crossbows, they weren't just a question of defense. This was also a way of controlling the landscape, monitoring the landscape. And if you think about it strategically, a way of even perhaps funneling the raiders along certain routes into certain regions. Um, in, yeah. In the, yeah. One might fantasize about them, you know, having something like uh, Greek fire uh, on the top to warn people. They, they did this later in the 10th century in Byzantium. We, we know that this was used in the, uh, along the Eastern frontier so much later. Um, and they would have vigilas, right? Which is what they were called until, you know, in modern Greek times, right? Yeah. And they would have Greek fire and, and use it to signal anyway. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of sensitive to this kind of experience because of a story that my father told me. Uh, so when I was a kid, and he said that uh, when he was a child on the island during the German occupation, there would always be people at the top of the hills looking at the road coming to the village it's on an island and if they saw a convoy of german jeeps they would t tell everybody in the village who would then just disappear just go over over the hill uh, so that they would yeah they would leave only a few people behind to negotiate you know with whatever you know captain showed up yeah. and and it the interesting thing about the village is of course that it was built on the side of the hill facing away from the sea now, this is the result of a much later, this is because of piracy. Um, 
this is seaborne raids, right? And I should just add that those existed also, but they were much more uh, prevalent problem in the um, later ninth and early 10th centuries in Byzantium. There was a lot of seaborne raiding. Uh, and so if you are concerned about attacks from the sea, although you know you might want to have your village right there on the coast for all kinds of reasons, uh, it, it was from a safety point of view advantageous to put it on the other side of the hill so you can't be seen and, and targeted. And so that began to happen uh, around that time, I think around 900. Uh, but anyway, uh, by the way, Alexander, you mentioned that the Roman armies would sometimes cross the border and go off and, you know, cause some mischief on the other side. And so I'm wondering now whether um, there might be some kind of, you know, ideological bias, perhaps on the part of historians where we treat things being done by Gepids and Saracens as raids, but what the Roman army does is like military pacification operations, right? Whereas, I, I, so I'm just thinking aloud here, what if there's actually a they're much more similar and parallel uh, and that the Romans were the Romans also carrying out raids and, you know, perhaps the barbarians are just responding to Roman raids or that's how they see it. I mean, is, is that possible? Yeah, I think certainly. I think um, your point about the Roman raids is it's the same about the Sassanid Persian raids, that, that there's a tendency in both, I think, our, our sources, but this translate this transfers to modern scholarship as well, a tendency to see warfare conducted by, inverted commas, civilized armies with, you know, technology, with divisions, with uniforms, um, as somehow different, somehow organized, somehow rational, whereas warfare conducted by smaller, more inverted commas, primitive barbarian groups is somehow different qualitatively. It's it's irrational. It's barbaric. They're amateurs. Um, Amateurs. (laughs) Um, And also involves the mindless slaughter of civilian populations, whereas somehow, you know, Romans and Persians are more keen on fighting ordered battles with each right, other. Right, right. Uh, but I think in reality, there was no difference. The only difference was scale. Uh, right. Roman armies and Persian armies had far greater resources, larger numbers of men, and they could inflict more damage as a result. Um, the Romans tended, in terms of Romans launching raids beyond their frontiers, this tended to happen, I think, more in the east than in the Balkans. Um, especially during these bouts of Roman-Persian warfare. So I think 570s, 580s in particular, the Romans carry out a lot of attacks on Persian Armenia, Persian Mesopotamia. In the Balkans, according to, from, from the sources we have, we only really have uh, sort of concentrations of this activity in the 530s and then again in the 590s. Um, the, tar- the targets being these Slavic groups I mentioned south and east of the Carpathians. And actually in the 590s, they also launched attacks on the Avars, based in Pannonia, in, in modern Hungary. But the, the, the nature, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd say the only, the, the fundamental aims and characteristics of these raids were very similar to those carried out by the neighbours of the Romans. So I think there's a, there's a very good passage in the military manual, the Strategicon, possibly, possibly according to some, written by the Emperor Morris. This military manual was written in the late 6th century, um, and it seems to have been written in the context of Balkan warfare a number of indications and it has a chapter on how to how to approach warfare uh, against different groups different enemy groups and one of the groups is the slavs and one of the instructions is how to campaign in slavic territory things to watch out for how to organize your troops and one of the key instructions is how to burn and plunder slavic villages 
uh, and I can't remember exactly the details, but one of the one of the, the the gist of it is, you know, you need to separate your forces very carefully so that the village is approached from multiple angles. This would ensure no one gets out. Right. Um, so this is, you know, the aim is effectively to plunder, uh, to to kill, to burn as much as possible. Um, yeah. So it's it's very there's no, there's no different in the core in the core aims. And yeah. I think I should add I should add that really. Um, you know, manpower resources, foodstuffs, uh, perhaps in the northern world to a lesser extent, valuables uh, were very important to the Romans as well. And you know, raiding was just another way of of getting access to these resources. Yeah, I'm reminded of a striking incident in the early fifth century, and this was it kind of worked out that way uh, on, to the Romans' benefit, but not 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 in the um, in the obvious way. So there was a there was a barbarian raid across the Danube, the Skiri, I think, not sure. And they were captured. And the court at Constantinople basically auctioned them. And we have a law in the Theodosian Code, right, which says, um, I think you actually you've discussed this somewhere maybe in, in, in another article. Um, we're accepting applications now from any landowners who want to, you know, buy off some of these... Yeah. And, and like send a proposal that lists like where you're going to put them. And it's like so bizarre. It, it read like a like a modern application process. But anyway, yeah. Well, so There's been some very good work on, um, you know, the fourth and fifth century empire as a whole, including the Western Roman Empire, uh, relating this issue of uh, the migration of groups from beyond the frontiers into the empire, relating that with the, you know, the, the need for manpower uh, right. and landlords need for manpower, labor. Mm. Yeah, um, but I think we should also be sensitive to the possibly ideological way in which these things are represented sometimes. Again, that barbarians raid, but Romans have a proper military. Um, you know, in the long course of things, it strikes me that the early Roman Empire, especially with regard to the East, was the aggressor, aggressor usually. Like if you think of, you know, Septimius Trajan, Septimius Severus, all these people, like going and beating up on the Parthians was something that you did for status. No different from what, you mentioned earlier about you know barbarian chiefs who you know they need to lead their war band on a raid against the empire just for you know, rewarding their followers and you know that sort of thing but i think after that i think on balance the persians were probably more the aggressor afterwards uh after constantine maybe i think constantine was planning an aggressive war uh, when he died uh, so there is this kind of there's a you know problem of the the politicization of some of this terminology but you interestingly note in your article, in fact, you have a whole analysis of how the, the, the politics tends to play out a little bit differently by region. That is, that these kinds of events, when they happen in the Balkans, are described differently than when they, the way they happen in the East. And this is both in the sources and in modern scholarship. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how, why do we configure them differently? So, yeah, I, this, this, yeah this was one of the core core themes of, of the paper and actually it's been a core theme of quite a lot of things I've been interested in and have worked on. So the Balkans, as I mentioned earlier, um, had a very different history in the 4th and 5th centuries from the eastern provinces. The Balkans had experienced lots of invasion, warfare, uh, lots of immigration, demographic change, um, and also a lot of destructive warfare, I think it's fair to say. And, and by the time you get to the 6th century, we're looking at a very different region in the Balkans from what had existed in the early 4th century, for example. So gone are Roman villas, 
gone are classical type Roman cities, by and large. Um, gone are probably most of the original civilian secular elites from the region. Um, what, we, what we're looking at here is what I often call the proto-medieval landscape, at least in the central and northern Balkans of, as we've just been talking, hilltop forts. The cities are often hard to distinguish from forts. You know, these are, these are small fortified settlements, often maybe having a church, some administrative buildings, a barracks. Um, the, the elites, in addition to churchmen, we're looking at military men, many of whom are of inverted commas barbarian descent. And as a result, I think the, and, and, and on top of that, the groups that are accused of, of raiding the Balkans are seen as barbarians, as particularly primitive, etc. So mm. in our sources, uh, I think it's fair to say the Balkans is often viewed as a sort of barbarized, militarized backwater. Um, and and when, when some of the, you know, perhaps classically educated authors who work in the administration, etc., write about uh, key figures, emperors, for example, who came from the Balkans, including Justin I, Justinian, you know, they're seen, if they want to be rude about them, they're seen as boorish, oh, you yes. know, barbaric themselves, you know, in a way, un uncultivated. Yes. So I think this, this has an impact on how warfare in the Balkans is viewed. It's seen as somehow irrational, barbaric. Uh, raiding is seen as something that uh, regularly washes over the region. Um, the region is often seen as neglected somehow, left vulnerable to these attacks. Um, the people suffering terrible fates and these horrible, gruesome atrocities inflicted by animal-like Huns, etc. Right. The East, by contrast, is a completely different world. The East, as I mentioned, hadn't experienced warfare really in the fourth and well, late fourth uh, and fifth centuries. This is a landscape, very much a Roman landscape of, of large cities. Uh, there's a lot of economic, I mean, I, I should, should have mentioned the Balkans wasn't really an uh, economic powerhouse in the empire. It was right. quite sort of, the, the, the Eastern provinces were agriculturally fertile, uh, they, they, they contain big cities, centers of commercial exchange, uh, wealthy, religious, secular elites. Uh, obviously, you had the army as well in the borderland regions. Um, so this was a very different world, effectively, by comparison. The enemy was the uh, often viewed as equally sophisticated Persian Empire. So um, warfare in this region is viewed in, in, through a different lens somehow. It's more civilized. It's more it's viewed for Thucydidean lens. You know, these are great battles with generals giving wonderful speeches. And uh, so we don't get, and, and I would argue that the, the narratives in our sources on Eastern warfare, they're not centered around gruesome atrocities inflicted on civilian communities. I mean, if the Persian kings who were leading these raids decided to punish a civilian community, uh, they did so for rational reasons. For example, that, that community had refused to give up or refused to pay them a ransom so they punished them to send a message to other cities. And this is no different from what Eastern Roman generals and armies do during their conquests of Africa and Italy, for example. So warfare is more civilized, more rational um, uh, than it is in the Balkans. And uh, yes, it's a very, these are two very different sort of pictures we get. Yeah, when, when I read it, I, I realized that it, you, you're absolutely right, but I hadn't realized it exactly because, you know, it's kind of a latent bias. Um, and to give a striking example of how this bias plays out is that Procopius doesn't have a book in his wars dedicated to the Balkan front or theater. And this is something you pointed out in your book, uh, Justinian's Balkan Wars, uh, way back when. Um, and it's quite true. I mean, he's patched the Balkan episodes into digressions, right? in his other words, leaving it a sort of very incoherent kind of play. Like, 
like he wasn't even bothered to make sense of it. And it's like focusing on stories of atrocities and Slavic raids and things like this. And, and you pulled all that together along with the archaeological evidence and, and showed that it, it actually, no, it's a coherent space that the administration, the imperial administration is paying quite a bit of attention to and is quite possibly more important for it than the, the adventures overseas that Procopius, you know, obviously witnessed and, and he wanted to talk about. Um, so, th yeah, there is definitely that that kind of imbalance. And when you're talking about warfare between Romans and Persians, you know, the classicizing instinct automatically kicks in. Of course, yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's like this is my opportunity to be Herodotian or Thucydidean or, or whatever. And and yeah, it creates this very lopsided kind of impression. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy you, you've come along and, and corrected all of that. Uh, so what was in the long term? The, the the different trajectories of the Balkan front and the Eastern front, especially with regard to the impact of, of raiding and when they escalated into these huge wars that eventually were fought in the seventh century. So how, how did those two regions come out looking different? I think the answer to that uh, that question is, is related to what we were just, just talking about, actually, which is that uh, rather than being a neglected theater of war, in the first half of the sixth century at least, I would argue that the Balkans probably received probably a larger amount of imperial funding than, than most of the other theatres of war. It was an expensive region to control and administer. It, it was mountainous, inhospitable. Um, it, it was difficult to control as a unitary state to control from without. It required a lot of resources in terms of fortifications. It required a very proactive diplomatic policy. It required, I think, an energetic political policy just to keep on side the various military groups and military leaders who were who were relied upon to defend it. Right. Um, the East, by by contrast, I would argue, was less reliant on state funding. There were other sources of revenue for local elites in that region, um, and I think this was this this lies at the heart of the different trajectories of these two regions. Because what happens, really, in the final decades, for the first half of the sixth century, by and large, both regions. Um, they both receive imperial funds for reconstruction projects in the aftermath of warfare. They both receive imperial support, etc., um, large armies um, and these sorts of um, support. But, but really from the 560s onwards, as is well attested in most scholarship on this subject, the empire experiences two problems. One is a, a budgetary fiscal problem. It, it starts to struggle to cover its expenses. The other problem it experiences, uh, which I think more could be made of actually than has been, is it, it, for the first time in imperial history, it has to face two juggernaut opponents on two frontiers at the same time. I don't think, I mean, I may be wrong, I don't think this has happened at any point in Eastern Roman history in late antiquity up to that point. Right, so right. And, and the Emperor Justin II makes the mistake of provoking wars with both of these rivals. Right. The, the Avars and the Balkans, the Sassanid Persians in the East. So from the 570s onwards, things are much more constrained. And this means the imperial government is no longer able to uh, supply resources to both frontiers as it had done. At this point, it's clear the priority was the eastern frontier. And so most of the armies get sent to fight the Persians, at least until the uh, Persian War ends in 591, when some of this some manpower is re-diverted to the Balkans. But effectively, what this all means is that f from the sort of last three, four decades of the sixth century, these regions are no longer receiving the same money for reconstruction projects. 
However, we see two very different trajectories. So according to the archaeological evidence, which is probably our best evidence for long-term socioeconomic trends, uh, from the late 6th century into the 7th century, the Balkans experiences some sort of economic collapse, or at least, you know, sudden downturn. Mm -hmm. uh, we see the end uh, in many regions of coin circulation. We see the, the end of pottery imports, uh, signs of trade. We see uh, settlements being abandoned, or at least depopulation to an extent, far fewer people living in these places. Um, and also lots of evidence for destruction. Um, and by the time you get to the mid to late 7th century, you're looking at a much smaller, really very small, regional simplified economy. In the East, we see nothing like this economic collapse. There's a lot more continuity of what we might call a Roman settlement pattern, the Roman society and economy. And that, that, that runs into the 7th century and the great wars you're talking about. I mean, cities survive. Sometimes there are signs of stagnation in the later 6th century. So uh, major Syrian cities like Antioch and Apamea seem to have experienced stagnation, which could be li linked to bouts of warfare. But, but certainly we see nothing of the collapse we see in the Balkans. Um, cities survive, monetary economy survives, trade continues, uh, and people continuing to live in a, a Roman-style society and economy continue to exist in these places. Even at a time of reduced imperial funding, uh, and later on, in fact, the withdrawal entirely of the imperial authorities from this region, as indeed happened in the Balkans. So, right. um, so I would argue the big difference is that the East is able to show greater resilience than the Balkans because it has these powerful local elites, civilian elites, who have sources of funding other than state funding. So the region's economy is not just reliant upon the fiscal machinery of the Roman state, but there are other sources of funding. It's a I would argue it's a region agriculturally wealthy enough to produce a surplus which wasn't just used to pay taxes and to feed soldiers, that there was enough left afterwards to sell on a private market. I mean, this is a region with very large cities, large centres of population which needed feeding. Uh, it's also a region that sat uh, along trade routes which connected Asia with, with the Mediterranean, etc. So, um, so, so I think this is one big difference. Uh, the Balkans, by contrast, had, especially the Central and Northern Balkans, had never been really an economically prosperous region. This was a tax-consuming region rather than producing region. So I think if you, once the imperial authorities started to basically withdraw funding, perhaps withdraw involvement from this region, uh, it's hard to see what was left, really. And I think this would, this would explain any, any elites who remained in the Balkans from the late 6th century onwards um, were either unable or unwilling to continue funding the construction or reconstruction of Roman-style forts, cities, monetary economy, etc. You make a very good argument for that in, in the article. And, and fortunately, there's still some journals willing to publish long articles. We can put all of this data. And it's just fascinating to read. And I think you're right. The, you know, whatever Balkan elites we encounter they normally tend to be people who had left their communities and joined the imperial administration or the army. And that's how we know about these people, like Belisarius, right? Whereas in the East, it seems that they could do that, but there were also opportunities at home to have actual careers in their cities and they're you know, devoted to their communities and they continue to build things there. And it, you just get a very different sense of the, the, the socioeconomic um, you know, uh, uh, resources that, uh, that these two regions have. and. I, I want to come back to the topic of rating because I think it's very important as a factor in explaining this history as well. I mean, it is what you what you said also, but there, you know, it's rare in history when we can 
like, well, we can't perform controlled experiments, but you know, as, as close to it as we can get in the, in the seventh century in the East, we have the regions like, you know, Syria, Palestine, Egypt that were conquered by the Arabs and very quickly they're, they're conquered in a decade. Um, so there had been some massive disruption from the Persian war, which 20 years, you know, raged for 20 years earlier, but the Muslim conquest was very quick and those areas generally recovered. And those resources that you were talking about were there. And so while, you know, they were not exactly long-term the centers of Islamic civilization, especially once it moved to, to Baghdad and places like Antioch even sort of faded in importance, but it didn't just disappear the way a lot of the, you know, Balkan, uh, you know, towns or, you know, the imperial infrastructure just disappeared. By contrast, if you look at Asia Minor during the seventh century, right? So after 640, when it's subjected to constant raiding by the Arabs, you know, many raids a year often that were just highly disruptive, carted off so many people and livestock and so on. Asia Minor just remains depressed economically for a couple centuries until the Romans finally, you know, get their act together or they, you know, they, they managed to push back. And, and, and I think that the, the different trajectories of say Syria, uh, Syria, Palestine, even Egypt on the one hand and Asia Minor on the other after that point is due to that, to raiding. Uh, but, you know, that's just... The only, the only area that I'm, I'm still trying to grapple with, because my current work's on the 7th and 8th centuries of the Balkans, is, is to try and play... I mean, the Balkans, as, as we mentioned, goes into this sort of economic, um, well, or sometimes called a dark age. Um, it's, it's a much more simplistic economic period, and um, we're still trying to understand what happened in the region. But the interesting thing is to compare the Balkans and Anatolia in that 7th to 8th century right. period. Anatolia, as you mentioned, uh, experiences a series of raids by pretty formidable armies um, yeah. over a period of, of decades. The Balkans, by contrast, we don't really know much about raiding in the region after 620s, really after the Avar-Slav-Persian combined siege of Constantinople. The Avars stopped, stopped being a threat to the region um, because the imperial authorities withdraw from a lot of the region. It, 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 it becomes clear that there's not really much to raid there. <laughs> not much, there's not much point in raiding. Oh, really. that's sad. So, um, so I, I mean, one of the things I'm, one of the conclusions I'm reaching is that the Balkans probably experienced less brutal raiding in the seventh and eighth centuries than it had done in the fifth and sixth when there had been something worth attacking in the. Yeah. Um, so then it's a question of you know trying to compare. It's very interesting this comparison between Anatolia and the Balkans, which they do undergo a number of similar developments, albeit obviously the Anatol Anatolia retains the imperial military infrastructure yeah. to a greater extent. So it, it's almost as if what happens in Anatolia in the 7th century is more similar to what happens in the Balkans in the 5th and 6th centuries, when it's raided by, you know, yeah. endemic raiding, but there's a sort of fortification infrastructure there. So I, I guess it's it's possible to be victimized so much that you come out the other side. <laughs> it's like nothing to see here, folks. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so wrapping up, I, I just want to pose a general, a more general question, and that has to do with how little this kind of phenomenon has been discussed in recent decades. And it, so, I think it's so important that one could, I mean, just 
sort of thinking aloud here, one could even write a history of Byzantium from the standpoint of rating and its responses to rating, because that ties in with all of its infrastructural investments, the role of the army, right? The mutual understanding between provincials in the center that were being taxed, but this results in increased security. Uh, and we actually do see signs of a sort of normative expectation on the part of provincials that the Roman state will protect them. And that's why we're paying taxes for, uh, in addition to all of the infrastructure and like the way in which imperial investments in regions or even investments by local elites in their regions played such a crucial role in determining their historical trajectory vis-a-vis attacks you know, from the outside. And yet there's very little scholarship on all of this. And, and comparatively, much more scholarship on topics that, uh, and on a pragmatic sense, affected very few people or the lives of you know, very few people. Um, I, I, I struggled with this in writing, say, the history of the, um, let's say, eighth, century, eighth and ninth centuries, which in the scholarship are overwhelmingly dominated by a concern over iconoclasm, which, like, a lot of recent scholarship, and I'm in agreement with it, sort of downsizes that as a, you know, as the, the impact that it had on people's lives. Like, I don't think most people really cared or were impacted by this at all. Um, it's a few dozen people in the administration, the church and monasteries that are fighting over it. Um, I may, you know, I'm simplifying here a little bit, but I think that in terms of the existential footprint of the, of the event in question, right? Whereas rating was what it was about. It was how can the state muster the resources and the organization to counter this, to defend its territories in order to extract taxes more securely and efficiently in order to invest in the army. And I see the eighth and ninth centuries as this long, but ultimately successful effort to roll that back and stop the raiding and eventually go on the offensive, which they do in the 10th century. Like that's what it's all about for the lives of so many millions of people. That effort was the most important thing going on. And yet, you know, we don't talk about it that much. I, I'm just, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. I have some thoughts about this, but they're amateurish. Well, I mean, I think, I think the point is that in a borderland region, and of course, Byzantium eventually, especially in the 7th and 8th centuries, becomes one big borderland region. Yeah. But in the, in the, up to the 6th century, the borderland regions, raiding was endemic. It was, it was an integral part of relationships across frontiers. So it was part of provincial life. And as you mentioned, it shaped a lot of what we see on the ground in those borderlands. I think the problem, the problem is, I mean, in terms of scholarship on the Balkans, I think raiding does feature quite prominently. Um, we yeah, do hear yeah. about it. But certainly in terms of the other parts of the Eastern Roman Empire, right. and in terms of late antique and Byzantine studies as a whole, it is marginal, I think it's fair to say. Um, there are all manner of reasons. I mean, I think more broadly, warfare is not particularly popular or fashionable in, in our academic field at the moment. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons could be put forward for, for this. Um, I mean, people writing in the West, most of us haven't experienced warfare ourselves. Most of us haven't been attacked by armed men on horseback, um, <laughs> luckily. Um, for us, warfare is something that happens out there, you know, in Afghanistan or Iraq. We read about it in the newspapers, but it's something that doesn't affect us on a daily basis. And I think that has an impact. 
I think also in, in modern academia, we're under pressure to write, uh, to, to publish things that have some sort of impact or relevance to the modern world. Therefore, the impact of climate change or environmental change right. on society's economies has much more resonance, as it were, um, which is, I think, another factor. Um, I think our sources don't help this. I mean, the primary sources we have also compartmentalize these things. You know, Procopius, he sees, you know, warfare as something he writes a book specifically on wars and wars. They're quite sort of, you know, he doesn't tell us about society in a social economic contexts in which those wars took exactly. place. The wars, the wars take place in a vacuum in Procopius's work. Um, and, and of course, many people at Constantinople, for them, probably warfare was something that happened out there okay. on the frontiers. So I think a lot of this relates to the fact that maybe borderlands and frontiers aren't that popular in modern academic research. And modern academic research on late antiquity in Byzantium, for me, is probably more interested in, you know, the works of elites in in central regions of the empire, on theology, on philosophy, uh, etc., which um, perhaps, you know, weren't related to warfare so directly. Whereas, as you mentioned, you know, borderland regions, everyday life was uh, potentially impinged upon by this violent activity. Um, Socioeconomic history is the other point. I mean, socioeconomic history is often written separate from military history, which... I think is probably a, a bigger problem because uh, especially in borderland areas or even areas interior from borderland areas, uh, you can't really separate warfare from socioeconomic history um, as far as I'm concerned. But I think the problem with socioeconomic history has is that the evidence is often archaeological, as I mentioned earlier, and it, it's often not very possible to date precisely. So it tells us often a lot more about longer term trends which are very hard to associate directly with the short-term impacts of warfare. This was one of the themes of the paper. So it's quite easy if you're writing socioeconomic history to dismiss political and military events which have a short-term impact because they don't actually often or always relate to what you're seeing in the socioeconomic evidence. So, yeah, I mean, a number of, a number of reasons, really. Yeah, I mean, just putting together the things that you're saying, I, I, I would add that e- even within the domain of military history or writing scholarship on um, on military history, these experiences of rating tend not to be foregrounded because even scholarship on military history tends to focus on armies and soldiers and institutions and diplomats and states and you know, the, it's a big picture and doesn't often get down to the more sort of granular level of agricultural communities, livestock, and precisely all of the, the socioeconomic structures that you were talking about, that almost seems like a different field now. But precisely the historical impact of the constant rating is on those structures. Yeah. And so unless you're attuned to the concerns of you know, peasants and provincial you know, communities, and their, if, if you were to ask them at any time, you know, what is your, what are your, what is, you know, if you're taking a poll of, you know, vo- you know, likely voters, what, what are the topics that concern you the most? And they would probably say <clears throat> the rating. Uh, but that doesn't figure into our category for military history. No, no. Um, but I, I think that a lot of things were taking place on the ground that, that, that even the rulers of the empire were attuned to and they, they could see. Well, in a, in a way, raiding sits at the juncture between top down and bottom up because, yep. you know, raiding, as you say, it had a very um, stark ground level effect. But it was also, you know, intertwined with politics in a borderland region and diplomacy. 
right. the tool of politics effectively. Um, right. And I suppose one last, I mean, one final point, which, uh, well, another point which which relates to this is that raiding, another, another problem with raiding or raiding has, it often gets conflated with migration. Um, right. And this isn't so much an issue, I think, in the 6th century, because the 6th century was a period in which the borders didn't change that much. If groups were settled in the empire, they were settled on imperial terms. In other words, the empire invited them in. Yeah. But in other periods, if you move to the 7th and 8th centuries in Byzantium or the 4th and 5th centuries in the Western Roman Empire, you often you often have, inverted commas, barbarian, raiding and migration as a sort of cup, a couplet. Right. Um, and they're often seen as pretty much the same thing. Whereas in actual fact, they're completely different activities and developments yeah, with yeah. very, very different impacts on a society and economy. Um, raiding, as we've, we've talked about, was destructive. It was transitory. Migrants or conquerors moving to a region, the last thing they wanted to do was to destroy or to force out its resources. Right. <laughs> the main reason they moved there was to exploit the resources. And as we've talked about, the number one resource was manpower. So this yeah. this idea that sort of barbarian raiders would come in and sort of kill everybody, force everyone to leave, makes no economic sense. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a different activity from raiding entirely. We should do another discussion on migration. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, and boy, is that a relevant topic, if anything. But uh, for now, for raiding, I, we're out of time. Um, this was wonderful. Um, it uh, it really clarified, and and your um, scholarship as well has clarified for me some of the issues that I was struggling with. It's trying to bring this into focus as the nexus of so much that was happening in East Roman history. So thank you, Alexander, for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me.